1: W.A.B.E. in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Ruth E. Carter is the first black woman to receive an Oscar for Best Costume Design. That was in 2019 for her work on the film Black Panther. Carter has designed costumes for over 60 films for such renowned directors as Spike Lee, Steven Spielberg, and Lee Daniels. Now, another first for Ruth E. Carter. The first exhibition of her designs are on display at Scadfash Museum here in Atlanta. She'll tell us about the exhibition, Afrofuturism in Costume Design, later in the program. First, A Breath of Spring in January. When we last spoke with the Atlantis Symphony Music Director, Robert Spano, he talked about how he and the orchestra adapted to performing together in person, though not to a live audience. The new format was a series of fall concerts streamed on the ASO virtual stage. Now, the ASO has announced its spring series, and Mr. Spano is here via Zoom to tell us about the lineup. Maestro, it's always such a joy to talk with you. Welcome back.
0: I can say the same, Lois. It's always great to talk to you.
1: Well, when was it apparent that streaming of concerts had to continue throughout the 2020-21 season? Well, I think
0: somewhere along the way in the fall, as predictions which have proven to be true of a second wave of cases of COVID, it became clear that we needed to plan for but look to be the likelihood of not being able to have live audience. Of course, we still have our fingers crossed that if something Mm -hmm. unfolds like a vaccine in such a way that we could start to have socially distanced audience, we would, but we have planned for what looks to be the most likely
1: scenario. Oh, wise and Oh, what a gift it would be if we could safely return to the hall.
0: Well, we have had a couple events with uh, chamber music on stage and about 15 to 20 people in the hall. And as you can imagine, that few number of people in the hall, it was wonderful to have bodies in the room listening. It was just wonderful. So, yes, we're going to work toward that as quickly as we can safely do it.
1: This spring series offers a robust lineup of works and soloists and it appears that a tremendous amount of thought went into planning these programs. How did you approach putting these concerts together? Well,
0: I think the the limitation drives a lot of the decision making. And what as I as I think I mentioned to you earlier, Lois, the, there's something about severe limitation that fosters a kind of creativity mm-hmm. because you have to find ways to work with the limitation. And um, it's amazing how many possibilities there are when you start to look and dig around and, and think about what is possible as opposed to what, what's being made impossible. And it's, it's actually kind of exciting.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear it's exciting because it looks like a very entailed jigsaw puzzle with thousands of pieces that you had to make fit. And they fit into this gorgeous lineup. There are certain elements that stand out. Works by nine living composers.
0: Well we're very happy to be able to do that because we don't want to lose our connection with living composers that we've had uh, throughout our orchestra's history and it's really wonderful that we were able to do that. In the fall we had very little uh, music of living composers and the reason was quite simple. The, The challenges of getting uh, the parts and the materials to do the music of living composers. We, we didn't have our planning because of the nature of the situation. We weren't able to do that quickly enough. Now that we've had time this fall to think about what's coming up after January, we can we can again do more of that work.
1: First, can you tell us about some of the new works that particularly excite you that will be performed in this spring series.
0: Well, I think one of the things that excites me is getting to composers that I don't yet know, and because that's always a thrill. And we have a number of those this spring. We have Abels as a new composer to me, and then there are our performances that I'm not involved in that are also composers that. Are new to me like Carlos Simon and uh, there's a wonderful new concerto for Jean-Yves Thibaudet that unfortunately I'm also not conducting which is by a new composer to us, Zietmann. So it's nice to be able to introduce new composers in the midst of all of this as well as uh, composers that we know.
1: Let's talk about your program On February 4th, Chopin and Shostakovich. This chamber symphony has strong, serious political overtones. Would you talk about the Shostakovich Chamber Symphony?
0: Well, if I'm not mistaken, much of that music was used in a film that Shostakovich wrote music for on the bombing of Dresden. It is a very dark work that is um, mostly slow movements and uh, it was originally the eighth string quartet and Barshai turned it into a string orchestra piece, which really primarily just involves adding the bass parts and knowing that all the parts will be doubled. It is a very moving and cathartic piece of music.
1: Shostakovich was such a master at conveying the agony of persecution, and yet he he could write, you know, these perfectly charming, lighthearted ballets.
0: It's funny, I know that a lot of people, a lot of musicians, music lovers, musicologists, commentators on music, hear in Shostakovich an acerbic irony, even in his lighthearted music. And I think I agree with them much of the time. I'm not convinced that he was incapable of being lighthearted and ebullient without irony. Similarly to Tchaikovsky, actually, we know about the last movement of the Fourth Symphony of Tchaikovsky that for all its exuberance, he was actually portraying the experience of being the outsider at the party. And I think that is something Shostakovich inherited uh, in that tradition, that he can write what on the surface may seem to be quite uh, joyful, even music that is tinged with its shadow. But uh, I I think he could also, as you said, just write wonderfully ebullient music on its own merits.
1: But I I appreciate your description of this music as cathartic
0: well I find it so anyway Um,
1: what in particular about it
0: well I think that one of the many purposes of any art and certainly of music is the ability to process difficult journeys, grief, sadness loss through the means of beauty that beauty is a way to take those things and uh, digest them in a way that is not destructive. I was reading a wonderful book of Martin Prechtel, the shaman who's, who's written a number of books that have achieved some popularity. And it's the one he has on grief and praise. And he beautifully makes the point that grieving is praising. If we lose a loved one, and truly grieve the loss, it's because we're praising the life that was lost. And I thought that was such a beautiful insight.
1: Robert, this is fascinating because as a Jew, it's always puzzled me that the mourner's prayer, the Kaddish, Mm -hmm. never mentions the dead. It's praise of... God, which essentially is praise of being. Oh, never thought about that, Lois. That's beautiful. I must read this book you're describing. Wow, you have a blockbuster on March 4th. Yefim Bronfman playing the Beethoven Third Piano Concerto balanced with uh, um the contemporary works talk about this beethoven bash
0: well i'm just thrilled mr Bronfin is able to get here I, but i'm assuming he will be able to get here but it's just great to have him back he's such a towering artist and it's just so exciting to have him back
2: um, and
1: you've toured together you've performed on many occasions it's a wonderful chemistry and history you share.
0: We have been in many places together in the world. It's been a, it's been a wonderful few decades knowing him and being able to work with him. He's, a, he's incredibly powerful as a pianist, as a musician.
1: And then that concert opens with delights and dances. You mentioned Michael Abel's. I believe he's an L.A. based composer, California. That's
0: right. I believe that's right. And this is a piece that features string quartet, but then also has string
1: orchestra. So it's it's all strings, but with a hierarchical structure to it. Atlanta Symphony Music Director Robert Spano discussing the orchestra's spring season. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You are listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the Atlanta Symphony Music Director, Robert Spano. We've been talking about the orchestra's spring season, which begins streaming next month. Would you talk about the Sinfonietta by Benjamin Britten?
0: Well, it's his opus one, and it's just wonderful that this little piece uh, has shows so much of what was to come in his long life as a composer and and prolific output. And it's just marvelous. And it's it's short; it's about fifteen minutes. It's for wind quintet and string quintet, so its forces are also extremely concentrated. It's it's like a little seed. Oh. Uh, from which we get to to hear what's to come in his work.
1: I seem to recall his Simple Symphony for Strings was written when he was a teenager, or at least upper teens. Does this predate or postdate that? Do you know? Well, the,
0: the Simple Symphony, he wrote, uh, the material for the Simple Symphony came from his childhood, even. And then he um, updated it and worked with it later in life. I can't remember exactly how old he was when he did it, but those pieces are actually uh, juvenilia.
1: Wow. And this is slightly older and a bit more oh, mature.
0: Yes. I think he was terribly old when
1: he wrote this. He must have,
0: he must have been 20 already or
1: something. Oh, wow. Yeah. Over the hill. Hey, Mozart, look what he had turned out by then. Now, another spectacular lineup. In late April, you perform an all-Brahms program with Bobby McDuffie. Bobby has made a
0: project of playing the Brahms concerto again in his life because he didn't do it for a very, very long time, and so... He talked to me about this a couple years ago, how he wanted to bring the Brahms back into his repertoire. it around all over the world and I'm I'm so happy he's joining us again he's such a great friend of the ASO but to do something that's so important to him right now in his work and the Brown Second Serenade this is a great example I think of of what these uh, COVID limitations have the doors they've opened as well as the doors that are closed because this is a work of Brahms that's very rarely played and maybe in part because it does not have violins or violas. It's for winds and cello and bass and it's a marvelous piece. In a way, Brahms put off writing his first symphony for so long, and uh, the, the orchestral works that precede the first symphony in a way are his studies for for the challenge of writing a symphony after Beethoven, which he felt the weight of quite strongly on his shoulders. Just marvelous piece, the second serenade.
1: I love it, and I I appreciate what you're saying about Um, this silver lining in re-examining repertoire, this silver lining in the COVID cloud opening up repertoire because this is a piece that deserves to be on a master season symphony concert, yet seldom considered that.
0: That's absolutely right.
1: All right. We are moving to june and i have to say that i teared up a bit when i looked at this program because it will be your victory lap
0: i that's that, that's my official swan song isn't
1: it now i don't want to think of it as a swan song i like to think of it as a victory lap one of your muses the singer Jessica Rivera will be the guest soloist. Tell us about the two works you have chosen.
0: Well, the Fourth Symphony of Mahler has existed for many years in a small version. Uh, Schoenberg's, uh, Schoenberg had a group of people who arranged, this is before recordings, who arranged pieces for, to play for each other in Vienna at the time. And uh, a lot of that repertoire is uh, is very famous and popular, even. Afternoon of a Faun is one of the pieces that got arranged, for example. And the interesting thing about such a process with Mahler Four is that it's a reduced orchestra by him to begin with. It doesn't have trombones. It makes little use of the trumpet. It uh, doesn't have the very large woodwind or horn sections that are typical of his output. It's already a bit of a chamber orchestra for Mahler, even though it's still a big orchestra. And so the, the idea of, of making it even more intimate actually fits very well with the spirit of the piece. And of course, the spirit of the piece is embodied in the last movement Mahler is so, despite the fact that Beethoven introduces voices into the symphonic form with the Ninth Symphony, Mahler does something yet more distinguished in a way, which is to introduce the song into the symphony, because he does it a number of times to have a song, and, or the use of songs as they proliferate and flower within the symphony. In this case, the last movement is a song. And of course, it's a song about an angel, and Jessica Rivera is an angel. So it's great to have her singing it. think there's a moment at the end of the third movement, which is the long, beautiful, soulful adagio of the piece. And near the end of it is just a radiant explosion of light. It's overwhelming and, and kind of terrifying. And, and I think that is the Annunciation of the angel. That's the arrival of the angel. And then comes the song. And it's about living the heavenly life. And I always think of Rilke's uh, first Duino elegy, where he says, every angel is terrified. And I I can't help but think of that in the context of the Fourth Symphony of Mahler because uh, it makes so much sense what he so simply points out. And if you think of any account of an angel appearing, it always starts with be not afraid, which means, you were scared witless. <laughs> uh, so I just love that aspect in the Fourth Symphony and the connection to Rilke in my mind. I I just love that.
1: view of the heavenly life would also connote a little bit of terror at this mystical being appearing. Exactly. And what of Barber's summer of 1915, Knoxville?
0: Well, this piece is so extraordinary. And I think in large part because of Barber's sensitivity to the text and the his text setting, how he finds a way through musical sound to encapsulate the spirit of the text is just extraordinary. And there's, this is a piece that Jessica sings often and she just owns in so many ways. One of the beautiful things about her singing is the, the sensitivity she has for text. It's just a, a wonderful piece. And in, its, in my mind, in its intimacy, because it's also for a small orchestra and is a, a quite an intimate statement, it fits so well with the Mahler in spirit and, and
4: mood.
1: It's a beautiful pairing. And you're quite the dynamic duo, your Batman to her Robin. When we last spoke, you quoted Nietzsche, saying, without music, life is not worth living. My Spano, thank you for everything you provide us in the way of making our lives so rich with music.
0: Thank you, Lois, for everything you do as well. And I'm thrilled to be able to talk with you again about what's coming up.
1: Conductor, pianist, composer, and Atlanta Symphony Music Director Robert Spano speaking about the orchestra's spring season. Those ASO concerts begin streaming in January, and there will be more information on our website wabeorg Lights. Neil Armstrong famously was the first astronaut to walk on the moon that was in 1969 now you can run through galaxies and millions of light years with science atl's new race through space app Last month, I spoke with Mesa Salita, the co-executive director of Science ATL, about this new interactive app. First, she explained how Science ATL got its start.
3: We started off about seven years ago uh, with the Atlanta Science Festival, and we had our very first festival in 2014, and it was a smashing success. It turns out people really want to learn about science uh, and they're excited to come to festival events like Science Story Times and hiking Stone Mountain with a geologist and all these different types of events that we have they were so excited about it we kept doing the festival and a few years later we decided that we needed to do more than just the festival and so we uh, changed the name of our organization to Science ATL, and we do things all throughout the year. We have public science events. Of course, our flagship event is still the Atlanta Science Festival, but we do a leadership development program, science leadership for uh, middle and high school students called the Chief Science Officer Program, and we've got other a science communication fellowship for early career scientists and all sorts of things that we do throughout the year. Um, and one of the most exciting things, I think, is the race through
1: space. Yeah, Can't wait to hear more about it. The 5K run is scaled to replicate an intergalactic journey, 54.8 million light years long. That's what the length of this pandemic has felt like for many (laughs) of us. Indeed. (laughs) And and since the COVID-19 outbreak, many races such as... Atlanta's annual Peachtree Road race, the Atlanta Half Marathon, these have been postponed or canceled. Other races have opted to go virtual. What inspired the Race Through Space app?
3: So we too had a physical in-person race. The first race through space, we ran, instead of running the galaxies, we were running the solar system, and that was in-person in 2019. And we intended to do that once again, but, you know, the universe had different plans for us, and we thought to ourselves, we could go virtual and just tell people to go run this distance, but can we make it more exciting? Can we do something a little bit more fun? And thanks to funding from Randstad and Emory University, we were able to conceive of this app, which basically allows you to hit start and the app tracks your location as you're running and so it's able to measure the distances that you're running. And when you hit a certain distance, you know let's say half a kilometer, you um, come upon your first galaxy because that is equivalent in light years to the distance that you have you have run and and you get to learn about the Andromeda galaxy and then you run a little bit further. And the app gets triggered to tell you a little bit more about uh, the Cigar Galaxy or the Sombrero Galaxy, until, all the way until you hit this, uh, the black hole that we got an image of um, a year or two back. Oh, wow. So
1: when a user downloads the app, what different resources can they find?
3: The app is free, which is really exciting. We were really happy to be able to share it with everybody. And we worked with the Georgia Space Grant consortium, uh, which is based out of Georgia Tech to uh, develop the content and an amazing writer who created such, such funny, funny language around the content that is being shared. So you're learning without really realizing that you're learning. You walk away feeling like a runstronaut. I love that word.
1: You have added a word and expanded <laughs> our vocabulary. A runstronaut is great, and I saw that you also dedicate this to hamsters.
3: <laughs> yes, uh, we. The the part of the joke in the app is it has to do with our uh, test hamsters who um, tested out the technology of the app for you in advance. And if you're not a runner, you can also be a walkstronaut. Uh, There's no reason that uh, one has to run uh, 54.8 million light years. It's exhausting. Uh, So uh, you can also walk the distance and get just as much out of it. That's great.
1: Mesa, this is a fantastic tool for exposing children to STEAM topics. What age demographic does the app address or does it have one?
3: You know, when I thought about this, I was thinking primarily of people who would have their own phones. And so, you know, that's a little bit different for every family, but I was thinking high school and up as is how I originally conceived of it. But, you know, my daughter's teacher, her kindergarten teacher was telling me that she took uh, her daughter now refuses to run in the stroller with her unless she gets to run to space, and so she just she carries that app, and she she looks at it, and you get to see pictures of the galaxies as you're passing through them, and you and you know she learns about it, and some of the jokes are over her head, and that's fine. Uh, so I really think that um, I didn't anticipate it at the beginning, but I really think that this could work for just about anybody.
1: Mesa Salida is the co-executive director of Science ATL. Their new race through space app is available through the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can find more information on our website wabe.org/citylights. When it comes to costume design, Ruth E Carter is a rock star. She has been Spike Lee's go-to costume designer since 1988 having worked on 14 of his films. Carter has collaborated with several of today's most acclaimed directors, and in 2019, she became the first black woman to receive an Academy Award for Best Costume Design. That for her work on the movie Black Panther. Her artistry is the focus of a new exhibition, Ruth E. Carter, Afrofuturism in Costume Design, on view now at Fashion Museum of Fashion and Film in Atlanta. Also featured in the exhibition is artwork of SCAD alumnus and Atlanta-based artist Brandon Sadler, who worked on the Black Panther scenic art. It is such a pleasure to welcome Ruth E. Carter and Brandon Sadler. Welcome to City
2: Lights. Thank you, thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for having me. Oh, such a treat. Ruth, I read that you originally wanted to pursue acting in college, what led you to switch to costume design?
2: Well, uh, costume design was the consolation prize. I didn't make an audition at, in college for a play I wanted to be uh, acting in, and so the director of the play asked me if I wanted to try and my hand at uh, costuming, and I said yes, and it stuck.
1: Well, the rest is history, and in fact, You made history. You won the Academy Award for Best Costume Design in Black Panther. When did your interest in Afrofuturism design begin?
2: I believe uh, wholeheartedly that uh, as... As a filmmaker working with Spike Lee, we were embodying our Afro future. When I think of uh, Spike Lee or Ava DuVernay on their sets directing their stories about uh, African-American history and having purpose and telling an authentic story, it's telling a, a story of Afro future. They are experiencing their personal Afro future. And they're, they're looking to better the lives of, of a culture and tell stories that are, you know, more rooted in authenticity than have been told before. And by the time we get to Black Panther and we're able to take hard science and infuse it in into African culture and tribal culture and uh, retrain the viewer's eye to see beauty in things that they were a little afraid or shy about and to bring that right home with a superhero. Uh, that they all could aspire to be like. It was the culmination of my entire life's work.
1: Wow. And you had quite a bit of impressive work. How many films in total are to your credit?
2: I have not counted. I have, IMDb says 65, but I can't believe I've done that many.
4: Oh,
1: wow. Now, Brandon, yes. you are also have a special connection to Black Panther. Would you talk about your contribution to the film?
5: Uh, Yes, I was hired to do some murals for the set. There's a character, um, Shuri, she's uh, T'Challa's sister. And in her laboratory, she's a scientist and she has this tower and I've decorated the the facade of the tower and and some peripheral pieces around in in the
2: laboratory.
1: And Ruth, I read that that was a particular favorite of yours on the set.
2: Yes, uh, Hannah Beekler, who was the production designer, she came over to our workshop at uh, Screen Gems, and she said, Ruth, you've got to come and see this mural that this artist, Brandon Sadler, did. And I saw it, and I just thought it was just beautiful, and it really spoke to the spirit of Shuri and the spirit of the film and um, I had designed this bright orange vest for her to wear and in that setting and it just was like kismet we all were on the same page and I, I you know Brandon at that time he doesn't even know he's so shy about it I was like, <laughs> my, my superhero you like helped me sell that vest to the producers you don't even realize it oh so wow I you know I was so excited to meet Brandon and when I finally did I felt like he was a little brother. I have brothers who paint and so watching him paint on you know the set was thrilling to see.
1: Oh the whole family's artistic then.
2: Well they all think they are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Back to the costumes in Black Panther. Ruth how Did you approach making the costumes true to the Afrofuturistic style as well as breathable and easy for the actors to move in there are a lot of fight scenes in that movie
2: yeah well superhero films have a formula and they do start with euro jersey and it's a four-way stretch material that allows you to create a skin-tight suit that will also move and breathe there's a lot of techniques involved that uh, include technology And I just pushed the needle. Um, I brought fashion into the Marvel Universe in a different way with Black Panther. And I love fashion and I I love incorporating true style into the costumes. And so I'm always looking for ways to move us forward and bring in technology that's innovative from the fashion industry. Yeah. Brandon, last
1: year you were awarded... SCAD University's Distinguished Alumnus Award. Yes. How does it feel to work with the university again for this show?
5: It's a beautiful experience because, you know, you go through um, your undergrad and you spend a lot of sleepless nights and, you know, work on uh, your projects to get your deadlines straight and it kind of conditions you to get ready for what you're going to pursue in your career. And to come back full circle and have something to offer um, new students and also be recognized for the work that you put in. And it's a good experience, you know, like it feels like you're on the right path. And, you know, that's like who wouldn't want that?
1: Yeah, really. Congratulations. What can you tell us about the artwork you created for the show? How would you describe this exhibition of your works?
5: when ruth was talking about the vest that uh, kind of matched up with what i did on the set i kind of i feel like in my work i approach it like on, on an intuitive level and it seems like it uh it matches up with whatever it is that i'm collaborating with or the project has a, a greater whole and so with ruth's movies that she worked for like each costume has a specific genre and a and a time period so i just kind of took the mask that I did for Black Panther, and you know, for do the right thing, like I kind of gave them my '80s vibe, you know, just with the the way the expressions were and kind of some of the the mark making, and then moving on to Dolomite just made those more like '70s and had like a, a funky approach to those, and kind of made them feel like they went with that setting. And so, oh,
1: that felt very authentic. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I appreciate stuff like that, like when you can go through an experience where every individual stands alone, but all of them come together and kind of create the story and there's no piece that is missing, you know, like they all kind of relate. I enjoy that.
3: Ruth, what
1: are some of your favorite costumes featured in this exhibition?
2: Oh, I have, uh, I I walked through the exhibition and I have lots of memories, and so they're all my children, so I can't really pick a favorite, but with the exhibition itself, there are, there are highlights, like uh, the hand-painted t-shirt that Radio Raheem wore in Do the Right Thing, you know it just reminds me of the creativity in brooklyn and you know the the cultural afro culture that is alive and well in brooklyn especially when i was there doing that film and then as we travel through i you know see a lot of tidbits of things that I added to, you know, uh, costumes to tell a family story. The indigo blue of Kunta Kinte's costume just, you know, reminds me of, you know, how we harvested uh, indigo in Africa and telling that story and keeping that blue as a through line throughout all the costumes and roots. And and having dressed Anna Paquin for Amistad when she was, you know, 13 and then, also having another dress when she's 40 years old in uh, Roots, it's uh, a connection of, you know, me having, you know, generations in my work and, and, you know, people who have become a part of my film family. And Oprah, uh, you know, Oprah as an actress, you know, really, trusting me and, you know, giving me the opportunity to dress her character, not only in Selma, but also in the butler and, and to have those here representing, you know, her costume, they all become a part of some of my favorite stories.
1: Oh, I'll bet. I am in awe of her actually looking over the photos of your costumes from the exhibition. I was reminded of her in Selma and the Butler. And, you know, to think, she didn't start out as an actress, but what power she has. Are you friends?
2: Yes. Uh, when I, I uh, had a milestone birthday this year, and it happened during the beginning of COVID, and I had Aww. just uh, sent her a text and said, What's the best hotel suite, pamper suite I could stay in, in Santa Barbara, up there where she lives? And she gave me a whole list, and then COVID happened. So she said, don't worry, your cells are renewing every day. Every day is your birthday.
1: Oh, okay. All that and wisdom, too. When you start to make a costume for a film... How much creative freedom do you
4: have?
2: Well, I always say I don't want to be on my own island when I'm designing costumes. It's a highly collaborative work, but sometimes I walk into a room and I have Black Panther pasted on my forehead or I have Oscar Winner you know as i walk in and people go you know what do you think Ruth and i go let's collectively talk about it let's be uh, together because my costume goes on a set it's lit lit by a dp there are a lot of uh, factors to making this a successful costume so that i'm not dictated to per se because people think you know people want me to bring ideas to the table and and have the freedom to be an artist But, you know, we are collaborating, so I have to listen to what the director wants for the storytelling.
1: Okay, so the director sets forth the parameters.
2: He sets the tone that everybody collaborates on to accomplish it. Okay. What
1: advice would you give young African-American costume designers in particular, trying to forge their own path in this industry?
2: I have a story I tell. Um, I met an editor who was uh, one of the youngest editors to ever win an Oscar for one of his projects. And I met him and I said, you know, know, very early in my career, like at the very beginning, and I said, you know, "How, how does it feel, my God? And he said, just keep going and you'll get one, too. Oh, that's my advice. Just keep going.
1: Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter. She was joined by Atlanta artist and SCAD alum, Brandon Sadler. Ruth E. Carter, Afrofuturism in Costume Design, will be on display at Scatfash Museum of Fashion and Film through September 12th of 2021. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll hear about a spectacular exhibition of Persian art on view now at the High Museum. Our theme music is the first time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Have a safe and good weekend, and thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.